Hello everyone, this is Sakib and this is another episode. Time to record one with good friend and good, you know, podcast regular Aftab Khanna. And we haven't spoken in a while on this forum because of well-known reason I wasn't producing these shows. This is the third episode in like 15 months. And me and Aftab have been in touch. And uh, before I give the floor to Aftab, we're going to be talking about some some of the favorite cricket books that we both could come up with. Not the all-time best books, but before, you know, we get into the the realm of the topic, Aftab, how you been? It's been a while since we spoke here. Saket, thank you for having me back. And, um, you know, it's good to see you back. I know it's been a tough last 12 months for you, but, um, you know, good to see you back on the pod and uh, good to be doing this again. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, you know, like those memories are still fresh. You, me and uh, Sahil recorded the Pujara Rahane episode, I think, yeah. on 11th April. And aren't we and, glad Pujara is on his 100th test now? I think we were pessimistic at that point of time. Yeah, that was an obituary. We were putting the final nail Very in the much. coffin. <laughs> well, it's good sometimes to be proven wrong as a as a fan. Yeah, I think that's still like, uh, for this podcast, is one of the most downloaded episodes. Because of course, you know, uh, anytime we talk about a relevant Indian scenario, there are a lot of listeners because, you know, of our background and India has the, an amazing, enormous fan base. So in Pujara and Rahane were very relevant. So that episode is still pretty fresh in my mind. But today's episode, Aftab, so uh, ideally, Abhishek Chopra and or Vijay Arumagam or Sid V should be here with you because they have read as many books probably as you have. And I'm not a good reader, but I'm going to go along and, you know, give my opinions on some of the books that I f- found fascinating or, ch- or challenge me as a reader. So how do you want to even start it? I mean, what's your first memory of a cricket book? If you can start there. That's a great question. Um, so reading has always been, um, you know, very core part of my life. Um, thankfully, I grew up in an ecosystem where books were provided to me from fairly early on. I remember my uh, father used to pour over the newspaper every day. We used to have, I think, two or three newspapers coming home. Um, my Both my mother and my father introduced me to books at a young age. Um, as I grew older, I had cousins around me who had, uh, you know, literally a virtual library in the, in their house. So whether I was in my home or I was, you know, spending my holidays with my cousin, access to books was always there. Um, and so as I ended up developing an interest in cricket by the age of, I would say, seven to eight, um, I also started reading more about it. So every time I would pick up a newspaper, I would flip it over and, you know, go to the back section where the sports pages used to be and read about cricket first. Um, and then over a period of time, um, you know, started getting uh, introduced to cricket books, I would say, you know, initially, uh, you know, uh, as, a, as, a, as a fan started reading about some some cricketers. And then when I got into my late teens, and in my 20s, I started reading some more serious cricket books. Although I, I don't think I would want to be clubbed in the company of people like Sidvi or Vijay or even, or even Abhishek Chopra, I, I definitely have read less cricket books than them. Because to me, um, and this is an interesting thing, I think I watched so much cricket that the watching part sort of that experience was more dear to me than actually reading about the game. So my my cricket reading was a little bit selective. Um, I did consume a lot of published material that was on Crickinfo or on in the newspapers, um, but it's not like I went to the library or a bookstore and picked up every cricket book that was lying around. Um, 
just because you know i was more tuned into what was actually happening and more tuned into um, you know watching the game per se but over the course of the years i think there have been a few cricket books that i've read that have stuck in my mind and which i'll talk about um, today and by no means are those probably the best books out there um, but you know they they came at specific points of time in my life and i think they helped me to get a better understanding of the game and the context of the game at that point of time in my life which is why i think um, you know they stick in my memory more than more than some others so that's been my experience sake but, but what about you you know you you you're equal cricket nut like me how how has cricket and its literature played a part in your evolution as a cricket fan <clears throat> uh same you know like i'm i'm slightly older than you so I remember uh, my father bringing me you know because he's a big big cricket fan and a much he's a big reader he's a literature he was he was a into literature and you know our our old home in delhi had a lot of books and he was an avid reader he used to write a lot uh letters to the editor he even has a pen name for a government servant because you know he would write and question about policy he would question about the cricket team selection i know a lot of people don't think it's a cool thing but a lot of the couch generation fans that i call my dad and others who never played the game they had a lot of opinions so he would also buy me books and as history goes uh i i've been someone who struggled to read uh, or finish books you know uh i'm notorious of you know looking at books even in my 30s you know like my wife got me the book open with andre agassi it was coming out even though i was an a big agassi fan i went to the glossary and read all the pages that had the mention of two words boris becker and she said who reads like that that's a 12 year old habit i said look i mean <laughs> i'll be honest so films have been my calling so even in my film podcast that i with sahil you know i can speak freely but since this is a topic about books i remember buying with my dad a book about boris becker called boris by gunther bosch uh, from a karol bag bookstore and over the years he brought me a lot of books like gavaskar sunny days uh, imran's book before all round view there's a book you know uh, with imran on cover bowling with his sweater on and then uh, there's also something that came out on the eve of the reliance cup i think we may be talking about the same book maybe it had different editions so i don't remember much of those books when i moved to us uh, i left all those books in sports star collection back home i had a sports star collection from 1987 all the way to 95 and wow. sports world every week That's so amazing. and my mother sold it to you know raddiwala when i asked <laughs> <laughs> and when and when my mother and father moved to the us with their green cards they brought the boris becker book so even my mother knew like tennis was some not my first love but it quickly you know as uh, overlap cricket as my first choice sport to watch and that boris book survived i still have that book but it's not a tennis podcast so i'm going to leave the becker and i do you, do you sometimes that. do you sometimes regret the fact sakib that you did not become a twitter legend with your sports star collection going away <laughs> to the radhiwala <laughs> imagine <laughs> you you had like a page like subu you could publish a picture every day and people would have been lapping it up yeah i could have definitely got gotten to know subu a lot earlier i know him through vijay and karthik and uh, some of the other mutuals but yeah i'm not saying my claim to fame would have been the same but yeah i would have definitely gotten some posters out yeah and uh, there's an article that i always miss i don't remember if subu is listening or someone is listening was it ard mohan or nirmal shekhar there's a great article it's a big deviation uh which 
talked about the talent versus hardworking superstars. So one, mm-hmm. the talent was McEnroe, Becker, Azaruddin, and you know Richards, and on the they were mixing sports. And then on the hardworking side was the Lendels and you know right. uh, Ravi Shastri's. Yep. People who got more out. And that was just such a fascinating piece. I would love to do a podcast on that. I've been talking yeah. in my tennis universe to do a podcast. And if anybody who's listening can remember that article, send it my way because that article was God sent, please, whatever yeah. I remember of it. But yeah, yeah going amazing. back to, sorry, it, go ahead. It's amazing how, um, I'll make a one point about sports star. It's amazing how for a lot of us cricket fans in the 80s and 90s, it, it was cricket literature for us, right? And you took my mind back to one edition. I remember there's this one picture in Sports Star that stuck with me. I'm, I must have been 92 or 93. It was a picture of uh, Tendulkar playing a hook shot from the South Africa tour of 92 because I remember uh, the, the the wickets had Castle written on them and he was playing with his, uh, whether it was a V12 Slazinger bat right, that he mm. used to have at that point of time. And it was it was not a match report. It was another article. And next to the picture was a caption that runs next, uh, with the picture. And it said, many have the class, but few have the temperament. And then mm. Sachin Tendulkar is one of the few who has a combination of both. And I remember I went up and actually looked the meaning of the word temperament because I didn't understand it um, in the dictionary. And that was the first time right, that that word came into my dictionary. That what does temperament mean in the context of a, of a sports person? And so, yeah, yeah, you know, it's amazing, like how sports star by itself for a whole generation of cricket fans, they introduced us to concepts of English language and concepts of like sporting literature and sporting terminology. No, it's very true. Like, uh, again, you have to control me because I'm known to deviate even when I talk on the phone. But I think there's something very important what you just said, because exercising, you know, old books or remembering an old article, this is how a generation of you know that we both come from was fed information and right. today you know you can be open-minded because some of that stuff or you know or the wordsmith type writing is is old because right now we are in the era of data and you know new way of looking at tennis new way of looking at nba or cricket whatever sport you follow old notion of challenge but there is some grace in because that's your founding education that's how i think after so let me form a question out of this mm-hmm. uh some of the stuff that you've read, like, you know, if, if there's a book that you're going to be talking about, what's your definition of a timeless book? Can you go back like a timeless film? Like if you look at De Niro's Taxi Driver, I think it doesn't need anyone to import themselves in the 70s. It's as powerful and resonates today. But I tell some of the younger Indian Bollywood fans that if you watch Amitabh's Divar, you have to kind of get into a mindset that you haven't seen the last 20 years or so. Right. <laughs> Because otherwise you won't do justice to that film. So what's your definition in terms that's of a good very, book? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I feel, I think there are two ways to look at it. Um, you could look at it timeless in the sense that, can you pick this book up 30 years later, read it and still understand every bit of it and get meaning out of it that people would have gotten out when they when they consumed it when it came out. And I think that probably holds true not just for books, but maybe every piece of creativity, right? Whether it's a movie, uh, or whether it's an article um, or even a painting for that matter, right? The other way to look at it is there are some things that you probably should not consume without understanding the context or you can consume them, but you won't really appreciate uh, the, the the true artistic uh, meaning of it without knowing the context. So to me, like you raised the example of Divar, I think I think that is one. Unless you have understood the context of the India of the 70s, and the disappointment that had seeped in 
25 years after independence right the the whole you know ex- thing that expectations and hopes had been belied you would not appreciate you know the persona of, of amitabh bachchan and diva right to me and i i told this to you uh, when you guys did the podcast that to me amitabh and diva is the personification of gurudev's immortal lines jinne naaz hai hind pe wo kahan hai right where are the people who are proud of you know the vision of india because it's everything that runs it's an, it's an anti hero film right so it runs contrary to you know the expectation that we had when we set off in 47 so understanding the context is very important and maybe i mean out of the three books that i'm going to talk to you about if i if you had to pin me down i think probably one is what i would call like a timeless book like because it's it's a his, historical book it's a book about history so you could pick it up at any point of time and and read it and get an understanding of history but i think maybe the other two are just time bound um that they have to be read in the in an with an understanding of the context in which they were or the time around which they were they were written that that's my take on it um no that's quite interesting and i'll just add like the film uh reference you gave for diva that's like even beyond what i was expecting for an answer because i just uh, when i asked someone to go and watch this i mean your answer is you know maybe i should refer to that going forward because i just want you to, people to transport themselves in a in a place where they haven't seen amir khan or ranbir kapoor or you know the evolution but yeah the social context of the film is as important and javed akhtar talks about it but anyway uh i'm making you deviate with myself with talking you know film vijay will be mad like if he's listening why the hell are these guys talking bachchan on a cricket podcast so let's start with your first favorite book or mm-hmm. the book that you chose today yeah. and uh w- when you pick that copy up if you have a copy or if you ever were to get what do you, what, what is the recollection and why are you choosing yeah. that book yeah i'm i'm going to go way back in my childhood uh i think i should have a copy somewhere in my house in delhi i i hope i i didn't throw it away um so this is a very non descript book it's not a famous book at all um i had time hard time you know finding even a picture of it on the internet when i went searching but uh, i bought this book at the india international book fair that used to happen at pragati maidan in delhi i don't know if it still happens or not but it used to happen every two years and when i was around maybe 7 or 8 years of age my parents started taking me there um and this is maybe when i was i think i was either 8 or 10 um is when i bought this book um and at that point of time i had just become this you know big cricket fan uh, i think the 92 world cup had either happened or it was just about to happen um so i i went and picked this book up and my father actually got it binded for me which is the one thing i remember about it, it was a small book uh, not exactly pocket size but i would say maybe you know uh, relatively smaller would have been not more than 200 pages in length and the book was called uh, world cup cricket it had been released prior to the 1987 reliance cup so obviously i ended up getting an older copy in my hand from the, the bookstall where i got it from from the book fair um and and yeah so it, it because i was so young and my my dad used to get all my school notebooks binded he got this one binded as well which is i remember because it it was properly binded with that tape running on the left hand side and it had been written by dr narottam puri and ravi chaturvedi and i the only thing i could find on the internet about this book was i found a picture of a couple they've releasing it with the the person who used to head konark publishers it was i think it was published by konark and um it was fascinating because it it wasn't really a piece of literature it was a piece of statistics but for an 8 year old uh, me at that point of time 
it gave me a window into the three World Cups that had happened before. And so what this book had was it had list of all the matches that had been played in the first three Prudential World Cups. It had a scorecard uh, on a full page, uh, landscape mode, um, with batsmen, number of balls faced, how they were dismissed, bowling. And it had a one-page commentary uh, accompanying that match. Um, and and it was fascinating for me because still then I had only heard about, oh, India won the 83 World Cup and, you know, West Indies had won the two. But I, I didn't really know much about it, right? And this was a book of firsts for me in many ways because, you know, at one glance, I kind of went through all the three World Cups, uh, you know, was, I, I was so excited, right? There's, because it, it, you're also talking about an era when there's no cricket info. There's no way to look at historical matches, right? So I got introduced to, you know, what had happened at Lords in 1975 with Mr. Gavaskar's 36 not out. And I was flabbergasted when I saw it. It was like, there's a team that scored like 300 on the left-hand side of the page. And here we are 126 odd for, for three or four in 60 overs. So what were we doing? And then I saw, you know, Mr. Bedi's spell against East Africa, where he bowled 12 overs, and it was still probably the most economical spell ever in World Cup history. Uh, and then gradually, you know, getting to 79 and figuring out, wow, we, we lost against Sri Lanka. We were that bad in World Cups. And so that made it all the more sweeter when I read about 83. Um, and, you know, first seeing. And so by by the time I finished that book, you know, a lot of the memories of 83 were imprinted in my head, right? That first game where I remember, you know, Yashpal Sharma scoring that 89, uh, Roger Binney's uh, uh, match-winning bowling performance against uh, Australia, the final itself. I would keep rereading that scorecard about the final. Um, so so it was great in the sense that it... it, it, it um, the book filled this big hunger inside me as a very young cricket fan who just wanted to lap everything up about the game. And it introduced me the, to the concept of cricket scorecards because this is even before I'd started reading the Sports Star and I had an active subscription to it. So I understood like, you know, what a cricket scorecard looks like and the fact that at that point of time, 60 overs a match would be happening. Everybody was bowling 12 overs. I understood the concept of quota allocation for bowlers, right? Everybody has a fixed quota. I understood economy rates and all those things. I learned to interpret numbers of cricket in many ways. So it made me a more informed cricket fan. And this is also a function of the times you live in, right? We go back to the question of context, right? There was nothing else to consume because live cricket didn't, didn't wasn't coming uh 24 hours a day on television. It's an era where at three o'clock in the afternoon, Doordarshan would turn off. Like there's literally no television. You, you Even you turn on television, there's nothing coming, you know, for two and a half hours, Doordarshan's off. So I, I've come back from school. I've eaten my lunch. I have nothing to do. Uh, not, no way to entertain myself. So I'm just rereading this book over and over again. Um, because at the, what else do I do to consume my hunger for cricket? And so that, you know, is is why this book like stays in my mind more than any other um and it's it's hard to let go of like today it's very easy to access any scorecard historically of any game played anywhere but at that point of time if i needed to you know read about anything i uh, 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 that that had happened um in the first three world cups 
I, I would go and look at it. And I kept it around, if I remember, for a while, because even till about the 96 or the 99 World Cup, sometimes there would be some reference to an earlier game or Sports Star would carry a reference to any previous match. And I would quickly go and see, okay, what was there in the scorecard? So that that's the reason why this book kind of still is imprinted in my head. But again, you know, it's just the context in which in which I read it. Um, you know, it, it was a bit more larger than life for me than what the size and the and the you know content of the book by if if itself on or on its own would indicate. Amazing, a lot of memories come back, and uh, I probably had a similar book or the same book. I just don't remember if it was by Doctor Puri and Ravi Chaturvedi. By the way, mentioning those two names brings back like so much memory. So any younger listener uh, who is listening, a uh, lot of the telecast from Indian cricket point of view uh, from Doordarshan had Ravi Chaturvedi in Hindi and Doctor Narottam Puri in English. And they they were legends uh, in their own right from that era. And if you think commentary is, you know, a point of conversation now, you know, you you guys will have a hard time dealing with that sort of commentary. But that's what we had then. And you can't complain when the Doordarshan logo came before a test match in the morning. That was like God sent. But yeah, I mean, I think I had a similar book. And uh, that World Cup lasted 14 days because I'm going to be talking about a book later on in which that World Cup is mentioned. And now, you know, 14 days is nothing. Right. Oh, you don't, you don't get, you probably get like test match and a half, you know, scheduled in 14 days. And, uh, and also I think to your point, uh, what just came to me while you were talking about the scorecards, I remember even after those World Cups, a lot of one days in England were 55 overs. This 50 mm-hmm. over concept yep. didn't really take on in England for a long time. Yep. I remember Pakistan and India going there to play and you would read in the newspaper. I was always... Uh, of course, now the Texaco like, Trophy was fifty-five overs aside. I think till pretty much like ninety-two, ninety-three, maybe, maybe, maybe longer. I definitely know, like ninety-six tour of India, they were playing fifty over. Yeah. They were playing fifty over games by that time. So yeah, I mean, am- amazing memories. Thanks for sharing that. It just you know, brings back a whole chapter in front of you. Uh, hazy. I don't remember everything. You know, age catching up. But yeah, uh, I, I had a similar exercise. And yeah. sports start and and this this book you mentioned uh, sounds like it's Dr. Puri and Chaturvedi's uh, own a- attempt to bring like a section of the wisdom out there. <laughs> Almost yes, and uh, as I said, it had been released just before the Reliance World Cup because and the way I figured it out was the, on the front page or the cover of the book there was actually a logo of the. Reliance World Cup. Um, so I remember seeing this book. And I was eight, and I was like, "Okay, why does it stop at eighty-three? Like, where's the rest of it?" But I didn't realize that you know I bought it in ninety-two, and I had bought obviously an older edition. So I, 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 I didn't get so deep into scorecards for the Reliance World Cup, um, you know, as I did for the for the first three uh, editions. So I think it, it's fair to say it gave generation, uh, you know, folks from our generation, a pretty much a foundation. Because this was a reference point, like you said, you will go Correct. back. And I used to, I, I remember bringing this book to school, uh, or, or a similar book where there were a lot of scorecards. And sometimes in school, these books lose hands, and then it goes to a different class, and then it, you 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 don't see it for a few weeks. But yeah, I think this you, book. Was you were reference. you were you were more generous, Sakib. I never took any of my cricketing books to school. There was no way I was sharing these things. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it was not an idea to go and share and just not bring it back. But then there was a senior culture, you know, in my school, I'm sure every school. And then I had friends who had older brothers. And once those guys got the whiff of a book or a bat or a tennis racket, then you, you don't see it for a while. So I'll leave it there. I don't think they listen to this. We're, we're, also, talk, <laughs> we're also talking about times, Sakib, when books could be used to fact check. 
right? Um, something was wrong and you could say, hey, no, look, you know, here's the scorecard and the scorecard says this. So um, good old times. Yeah, yeah, I know. Good old times. All right. Let's switch over to you, Sakib. What do you what do you want to start us off on um, as your favorite book for the day today? Look, I'm a poor reader, like I'll be honest. And, you know, it's not an attempt to self-deprecate. You can ask me about my favorite movie from 60s or 70s, 70s or 80s. I'll, I can go on for an hour. But for books, I mean, I'll start with Imran. Mm-hmm. So, and more than a book, it's my relation as a fan with Imran. So if, you know, I, I would like to start, I've, I've spoken about this, I think, briefly on a podcast before, but, uh, you know, growing up in a in a very Muslim environment in Old Delhi, and then going to school to Dhalakwa. So my world was like, you know, uh, like I was a minority in the Muslim world, because I was going to an English medium school, and I was not mixing up with those uh, neighborhood kids uh, too much till I became a teenager and played cricket. And then all my friends at school were non-Muslims, you know. So, and and then enter the Pakistan team in our imaginations, you know, after the Javid Mia, that six, they are taking a toll on us. And in my neighborhood, me and my father and few other people were known as Indian fans. It was a very nice place to live. It's not like they were bad people, but you know how partition has its own effects. A lot of these Muslim guys around me were rooting for Pakistan. And on top of that, they were not even rooting for India when it came to a match against West Indies or Sri Lanka or England. So in return, because, you know, I thought this is my duty to be more Indian because I was an Indian fan. I started hating Pakistan beyond, you know, an India match. So in the 92 World Cup, all my friends in school, you know, who were not Muslims, they were rooting for Imran and Akram and Miyadad. And when a phone call came, Amit and Abhishek were happy that Pakistan had won. Here, I was praying, I think during Ramzan, that Pakistan should lose because I just didn't like Pakistan. So my my childhood was like kind of this, you know, entity crisis. I didn't appreciate sport for what it was. I just wanted India to win. I wanted Gavaskar, Kapil, Azhar. These were my guys to score every time and then enter Tendulkar. And I don't want to use the word villain. Imran, Akram, and Javed Miyadad, and Salim Malik, and Manzoor Ilahi, and Ajaz Faki, and Abdul Qadir, and Tawseef Ahmed, these were the villains. They just ruined many a memory from that six of Chetan Sharma to them winning the Benson Hedges World Cup. I was just like, sorry, any Pakistani fans listening, I'm just being very open. So for me to read about Imran is a very interesting topic before I get into the book. So I've got this book in 2012 when you know, I'm in my 30s now. So all my friends in the US are also mostly Indians. So Anand is a guy who I mentioned a lot who started the Tennis with an Accent podcast with me. He's a huge Imran fan. When I met him, he used to call Imran as Immi. I said, what the hell's wrong with you? How are you Imran's fan? You know, like I didn't say it loudly. And then he said, Imran's like a movie star. Imran's like a rock star. There's no cricketer like Imran. Imran's averages, Imran this. And I'm saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I just don't like Imran, right? So that was like, I knew like Imran was great, but there was reluctance. Imran never came up when I moved to US. So then I buy this book by Christopher Sanford. And then in 2012, I'm reading this book at a restaurant who was owned by a friend and someone's going to a birthday party and they say, you know what? I don't have a gift. Can I take this book and give it to this guy and I'll buy you this, buy this book back to you. I said, dude, really? And of course, my friend who's not again listening to the podcast takes this book and I don't touch this book till 2016. Then I buy, I think, an online edition, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe in 17. So you read it in 2016, 17? After yeah, I started in 2012. In 2012. Oh, yeah, okay. I read like a okay. few pages. And then, so for me, you know, like it was more like coming of age as an adult 
appreciating right. a one of a flawed slash complex slash superstars of the game. Yeah. Who I think there is no equal if you look at his story oh, and his yeah. trajectory. And he's he's grown more complex, right? You, oh yeah. <laughs> ever since. <laughs> no, no, yeah. The prime ministership and the politics. I'm not even interested to talk about because that's not my cup of tea. That's not why I admire him later on. There's a hidden admiration for all this time because I hated his team and him so much because they right. got India's number. And uh, finally, when I read this book, I mean, just like any other, I'm not saying it's it's a great book, but I think this man's account is so great. What he went through, he's just like such a pioneer, even in world cricket, especially for Pakistan cricket and the kind of broken feudal system they have uh selectors you know who ran cricket and in his second coming when he brought this team into resonance like the probably the second best team after west chindis in the late 80s oh, yeah. and then eventually winning the world cup a president is recalling you after retirement this stuff doesn't happen to everyone and i'm not okay. saying this is like all great but this is i don't know society produces a man or man is a shadow of society but in this case it's very fascinating there might be better cricketers Akram, like statistically, Vakar's peak is higher than Imran as a bowler. But I think this is like a must study. Just like if <laughs> you have to read a book, I would say just read. Uh, and, and you won't be surprised because, you know, he's a very well-documented man. He's recent. Mm-hmm. He's not like yeah. Bradman or Harold Lawwood or someone who's like from a different era. There's a lot of recent information about Imran. And plus, he's the prime minister. And then his cricket commentary has had some biases. I'm not here to sell the man, but I think the book was just yeah, it was, it, it helped me evolve as a reader. Like, you know, I had to make peace. So, okay, I'm going to read about him. And what's, uh, the, what's the, let me ask you, what's, what's the one thing that you read in that book about Imran that, let's say, surprised you? Um, that that was a re- revelation for you to say, oh, you know, I did not think about this or wow, this is this is different from what my perception was. I mean, his county years is something very fascinating, right? His mm-hmm. His time at Worcestershire, of course, the book, Sanford takes a deep dive into his, you know, his sex life, you know, which yeah. for tabloids, which a huge thing, like yeah. this, this brown exotic man, you know, dating Oxford <laughs> students and models and socialites. And this was a mainstay. But I think his his evolution there, I think the, the tidbits, right? Jon Snow helping him with his action. And then uh, someone asked some of his teammates, I think Sanford in his research, was he inferior in any way? Like, you know, because racism was, yeah. you know, a More very open than, thing. Yeah. Yeah. So how is this guy struggling or was this guy struggling? And most, most of the accounts said he was quite aloof, very confident, remained to himself, but he only talked to you if he thought you were a worthy cricketer worth of his advice. So that mm-hmm. kind of confidence and arrogance was there. And, right. uh, but then he was also very sensitive to race issues. Like he didn't like the word, the name Immy, like, mm-hmm. you know, Pajara getting the name Steve. So that was yeah. always like the Western world's, way to shorten our names and Imran is yeah. like as simple a name with like two vowels right. now yeah. it's more simple than Chiteshwar you know or even even you know like any other name you can say so yeah right. I think that was a revelation that he didn't like the word Emmy and then he mm-hmm. would drink a glass of milk at bars trying to pick oh, women wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Ranbir Kapoor should use that in a movie because <laughs> you know th- these things are great and then one instance is where Steve Waugh when Imran's trying to make his comeback Steve Waugh was his roommate uh, for New South Wales when they were touring to play, I think, Brisbane, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. And I would like to read that paragraph, if it's okay, from Waugh's account, because that's, that's hilarious. Sure. So one of the teammates in question, the 19-year-old Steve Waugh remembers rooming with Imran on a six-day trip to Queensland. Uh, quotes, I wondered if I had been chosen as a promising all-rounder or a potential secretary. 
Vaughn recalls, Imran really was a legend to the point that I was so busy answering inquiries about his availability that I didn't, I didn't have any time to get nervous about the match, which eventually almost rained out. With, with some restraint, Vaughn adds merely, I wasn't a priority for Imran. He was perhaps more attentive to his senior colleagues with one or two of whom he would occasionally sit down to exchange technical chat. But what he chiefly seems to have enjoyed off-duty was going out and been, being seen in public. At the end of the season, this is, by the way, 1985, Imran threw a star-studded party which moved from a downtown Sydney restaurant back to his penthouse flat in the city's exclusive Connaught apartment complex. Steve Waugh watched as, for the first time in my life, I saw people use marijuana. End of quote. Wow. <laughs> Again, not to gl- glorify all this stuff, but, you know, this is why you pick up a book. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, well, I don't is... want to read about like a cover drive or what, you know, that's all yeah. good, but this is the account is so flawed yeah. that generationally, because it's, look, just, India... it's just amazing about Imran, right? Like the, the, the socio-political context of the man and this larger than life image. And there's fragments of things he's doing outside of the cricket field, which never impacts what he does on the cricket field though. Right. It's, it's unbelievable how walled off or compartmentalized different parts of his life were. Um, yeah, it's, it's like a bad Hindi film coming of age, but it's real. Yeah. So in yeah. 84, right, he suffers an injury. So he's out close to 18 or 20 months. So he's mm-hmm. rehabbing in London and he's dating who's who. I'm learning names like Emma Sargent. She's an yeah. artist. So that was one of the girlfriends, right? So, right. but then he also meets like this uh, uh, radical leader from Balochistan mm-hmm. and one of his friends in London, I think Naimul Haq. I think they start hanging out and this uh, guy, I think I'm going to pronounce his name wrong. Mari is his last name. So I think this is an eye-opening where I think philosophically and, you know, he becomes an activist. I think this mm-hmm. is a changing. And then at the same time, uh, I think a few months down the road, his mother has, you know, this battle with cancer mm-hmm. and he's in Australia sending money and Pakistan is like in dire state of like, you know, any medical facility to treat cancer patients. Yeah. And someone told him from home that the next person in the bed next to his mother was some poor man who didn't, you know, whose brother was paying his bills and they could not pay the bills. So then he cried at a, you know, alone. And then I think this is like the transformation where like this Mm -hmm. exotic playboy and, you know, arrogant or aloof, overconfident cricketer, you know, like he channelized. And I think that's when he realized it's in the book that he doesn't want to be doing commentary or or running a pub like most former cricketers. He's going to build a hospital. Mm-hmm. And, and and his privacy also is highlighted in one of the, and I don't want to give the total book away. I mean, I'm just giving some moments yeah. that he's playing in New South Wales. He he lost his mother. Nobody knows. So he's right. helping New South Wales. The only season he played and they're, they're doing great. By the way, they win, I think the, the Shepherd Shield, if I'm not mistaken. So he's mm-hmm. on a radio interview. Someone right. said about something about parents. He said, oh, I lost one recently. And then his mm-hmm. teammate who gave this account to Sanford almost fell off his chair. He said, look, he was, he was not showing this. He was not sharing this with us. So he was very yeah. private. So right. I, again, you know, the account is riveting. For me, it's more riveting because I don't want to know about this thing. I yep. just had his memory. I went to Lahore as a 10-year-old mm-hmm. and everything was about him. But yep. I had the last laugh, like when they lost that World Cup semifinal. You know, mm-hmm. I was at my guest. You know, I, I was a guest at someone's house and I was so happy, but everybody else was mourning. But yeah. he was just like larger than life figure. I mean, he, he still is. Yeah, I, I mean, you you live in America, right? After like I do, and they they kind of you know they kind of cherish their own sports icons. It's a whole different yeah. planet. Yeah, I think yeah. he would be top ten here. I mean, 
Jordan oh, yeah. and maybe a few he other names. He would be names. up there. Yeah, he would yeah, be up he, there with the likes of Jordan. Yeah. yeah. Just the overall package, right? What this man has Everything. gone through. What's yeah. your memory? I mean, what are, what are your some memories of since we're so talking I, about him? Yeah, I didn't really catch a lot of him in, in, in the playing time. I mean, I think probably the only time I saw him play was in that 91-92 season. Um, but it's post-retirement Imran that uh, always kept coming back in the news. And to me... <clears throat> You're right. It's it's a complete package, right? It's the it's the tall, strapping, very confident, self-assured looking person. He's a very self-assured personality. I think that's one. Um, not at all self-effacing. Um, and in our part of the world where we come from, right, it's difficult to find public figures who who don't come across as being insecure. And I think he's not insecure in any way at all. He's he's done things that he wanted to do. Um, if you use a word in Hindi, right? Bindas, right? What they say in Bombay. So to me, like, there's that part of his personality. Plus, then you layer on top of it this whole, you know, Oxbridge education and his ability to articulate himself really well. Um, and then you can disagree with several points of views that he's had. And to me, like, I'm, I don't want to go into his politics, but the disappointing part is that uh, I think his his politics regressed a little bit or his political thought regressed a little bit as he became more and more prominent. Um, uh, but the the cricketing impact of him and his shadow looms so large over Pakistan, right? That it's a bit like every Pakistani captain is, is Imran is the yardstick you'll be measured against him, right? It's something that I remember uh, I had read about Manmohan Singh once, and I don't know if it's still true in history or not. But people said that every finance minister of India who comes in the future will be measured against Manmohan Singh. He's the yardstick. So to me, Imran is like the cricketing yardstick in Pakistan, right? Because Whenever they lose, there's a nostalgia. Can we go back to the days of Imran, right? Where he he literally ran the board, right? He he knew the best, right? There's nothing, no wrong decision that he could take. And if you peel the layers and somebody would kind of go deeper into it, you could find different things that he may have done differently. But then there's this aura around him. Um, And for a long period of time in India, when we were not very successful, we wished we had a captain like him, right? Uh, Because he's tactical genius, man manager motivator so many things packaged into one which is why half of more than half of pakistan wanted him to be prime minister because they expected the same thing to come out of it no you're you're absolutely right and i i'm i'm looking for someone who actually you know can do a podcast on him because i think he deserves a podcast or two because there's so so much complexity so i'll yes. leave with a couple more uh you know recollections i don't want to give the whole book away one thing again that was fascinating from the county years is uh, because Worcestershire wasn't paying him enough. And plus he wanted to be, to see the nightlife of London. And Worcestershire was like, you know, maybe another suburb that wasn't good enough for him. So his move to Sussex, he writes to Tony Gregg that I want to play for you. He said, look, it's not done this way. You have to go through Mike Watkins, who's like your manager at Worcestershire. And then, you know, the county council has to weigh in. So next year he had to jump some hoops and there was like a ban on him imposed by, I think, uh, Worcestershire because he left them hanging. And then there was a survey done of the 19 county teams who would want to play with him. And 11 of the teams didn't want to do anything with him. So he was such a renegade. Like, it's just in modern, like, you know, this is like county cricket, not like uh, English Premier League or NBA or even IPL, where you're talking like millions and superstar fandom. So he was that kind of a guy then. He made this right. move so he could be close to London. <laughs> I mean, that sounds wrong, but that's that's that that's what his priority. Sanford says was cricket and sex. So, so but yeah, he pissed a lot of people off. 
But then right. he had a father figure like relation with the same Mike Watkins, like mm-hmm. in 77, when he's touring West Indies, they're writing letters to each other's. So, I mean, it, it, you know, I would just tell people to go read this book. I mean, I don't know if the political part is, is even worth encountering because he's he's famous for his there's cricket. So much to there's so much to him. Yeah. yeah. Again, yeah. I mean, prime minister is no joke in in that kind of right. society where you know he waited for his time for like what 17, 18 years as a politician. So I'm yeah. not going to weigh on you know his policy and him being on the alt right of politics. But I think uh, the journey as a cricketer is just like no one. If he was Indian or if he was American and they made movies on cricket, I mean, there has to be a you know someone has to be making a movie. But too bad. You know, we don't have a film or a mini series because his relation well, with Mia. Yeah, right, yeah. I think I think a real Imran movie would probably would have only happened if he was American, right? It's, if he was Indian, we would have whitewashed a lot of parts and presented a very sanitized Imran washed by the synthol soap. <laughs> yeah, when I was talking to Duncan Hamilton, if you listen to the podcast, and he said he's been approached for the Lauvard book. By the way, that's the other book I'm going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Many times, but they don't really believe cricket has a movie audience in America. So few studios right. have reached out to him mm-hmm. and they even went as far as who's going to be in that film, but then nothing. Once they had a director, then they didn't have an actor. Or once they had an actor, then they didn't have a director. So, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You know, cricket really doesn't sell in America. Otherwise, I think both Larwood and Imran, for different reasons, yep. they should have their own films. Yeah, yeah, so, I agree. So again, I mean, yeah, Imran is a rich topic, but uh, yeah. what's the second book you want to talk about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think Imran will will probably come again when I talk about my third book because the, the author devotes a little bit of time to his fandom of Imran as well. But let me go to my second book. So uh, I I'll pivot to the topic of of history and Indian cricket history for my second book, uh, which is Ram Guha's famous Corners of a Foreign Field. Um, it came out in 2003 and I picked up a copy pretty quickly. You know, I, by that point of time, I, I, I was aware of who Ram Guha was. The book had been previewed in newspapers um, and, I, and I wanted to, you know, just go ahead and read it. Uh, and I read it at an interesting time. I was in my final year of my undergrad. Um, I had just finished uh, a set of my chartered accountancy examinations. Um, so I was free. Uh, uh, I had a winter break of two weeks to enjoy. And this was when India was touring Australia in 2003. So I was at my grandparents' house watching cricket um, during the morning from Australia and then sitting in the sun, uh, North Indian winter sun and and reading Ram's book. And it's a fascinating read and it stayed with me because it introduced me to um, part of Indian history that I was totally unaware of. Um, And, you know, I I had no idea how rich... uh, Indian cricketing uh, culture and and history was, you know, prior to 1947. But even I would hazard to say that even between 47 and 71, what happened in Indian cricket is not very well documented or written about a lot, right? Um, so so it was it, it was really interesting. And this book actually, uh, you know, it, it came back to me a little bit um, in the past few days because uh, Ram has written. Uh, his biographies of Gandhi and his last biography is it's you know, staring at me in front of me right now. It's on my bookshelf, which is Gandhi, the years that changed the world. And it's the time period when Gandhi comes back from South Africa and his last uh, 33 years uh, that are spent in India. And I started reading that book uh, a month or so ago. And I, when I read the introduction, he talks about how, you know, Gandhi just became this massive overarching public figure in India uh, for his, the last 30 years of his life. And Ram makes the point that Gandhi was such a big figure that when he when Ram wrote the book about 
Indian cricket in the 20s and 30s, his book had 30 index references to Gandhi, even though Gandhi is documented as having never been to a cricket match, uh, never have come around uh, and met active cricketers. And to whatever extent Gandhi might have commented on cricket, I think he commented negatively saying, you know, he, he felt it was a distraction from national causes, right? But it's, it's fascinating that a social history of Indian cricket focused exclusively on what was happening in the game had so many references to a man who never even set fit, set, 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 set a foot on the cricket, cricketing field. Um, and so that, that, that I found really, really interesting. But the, the other aspect of it was like, you know, the the set of stories that are around uh you know how the game evolves with the the parsis and the english to begin with and then the parsis start taking the back seat and the the most fascinating accounts that i found were of um uh, you know uh the the two um brothers from the untouchable caste, Palwankar Balu and his younger brother Palwankar Vittal. And Balu is someone who Ram devotes a lot of time to in the book because he's this, he's the equivalent of Wilfred Rhodes of India and right, a very early ancestor of the likes of Jadeja and Dilip Toshi and Bishan Bedi, left arm, slow left arm spinner who took a heaps of wickets in, in Indian first class cricket, was a star in the uh, pentangular um, that used to happen, but for some reason, I, and if I'm not wrong, never captained a team because he was an untouchable, and the, probably the only untouchable who used to play in the in the Hindu team in the in the in the quadrangular that used to happen, which then eventually became the pentangular, the communal tournament. And Balu is this very interesting character because I think he he goes on an invitational tour of England. This is before India has attained Test status and does really really well. Is lauded in the English press. But he becomes um, not really a follower of Ambedkar, but he becomes, uh, he kind of follows that same line where he uses his cricketing pedigree in the mid-20s to then channel and launch a political career. And Mr. Balu then finds a mention in in um, in, in Gandhi's uh, latest biography that I'm reading, because surprise, surprise, he's a signatory to the Pune Pact of 1931. And for people Incredible. who may not be familiar... Um, the Pune Pact was an agreement between Gandhi, uh, who by proxy was representing the International Congress, and the untouchable leaders in India led by Ambedkar. Uh, and the context of this was when India came out of the second roundtable conference, the British government proposed separate electorates for untouchable castes, and Gandhi was violently opposed to it. Uh, he wanted joint electorates. And he went on a fast to death. He was imprisoned in Pune at the Yerwada jail. And he went on, a, I think, a, almost like a three-week fast unto death. And Ambedkar was under pressure because he did not want to have Gandhi's death on his conscience. And so Ambedkar leads a delegation of untouchable leaders who talk to Congress leaders. And ultimately, they go to Gandhi with the formula that basically says, we'll agree on joint electorates with the assurance that a third of those seats would have uh, untouchable candidates as as so you can't nominate no party can nominate any candidate other than untouchable so that's how you get representation in the legislature and that's the formula that they strike and when the agreement is signed palwankar balu is one of the signatories to it guha mentions that he actually comes and meets gandhi as well in the prison because the negotiations are happening there so that 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 part was really really you know fascinating to me um and then all, uh, balu's younger brother vitral also i think is is a spinner if i'm not wrong and goes on to play the other thing that stands out for me in that book is uh, how the the nature of the premier domestic tournament quadrangular which then becomes a pentangular evolves and uh 
you know, it is a communal, the teams are organized on a communal basis. There's a Hindu team, a Muslim team that starts competing sometimes in the sometime in the 1930s. There's there's a there's a British team and there's a Parsi team that's a bit of an also rare. And then I think there's a there's a fifth team as well, the All India Eleven. And um the by the time you get to like the late 30s, it's effectively a two-team tournament between the Hindus and the Muslims because they're alternating and winning. And, and you know, cricket has spread enough in India that the British are no longer uh, strong enough and the Parsis have faded. And there's so much talent coming out of the Hindu and the Muslim communities. And Guha writes that pretty much every final from there on is a, is a Hindu versus Muslim final. And you have the likes of Vijay Hazare, and Sikh and Naidu representing the Hindu team and Mushtaq Ali and, uh, you know, even Fazal Mahmood playing on the Muslim side. And this is done in an environment where by the time the 40s have started, the demand for Pakistan is taking space. Communal tensions have come out in the open in public life, but the tournament never turns communal. Right? It attracts a lot of crowds and there's a lot of, uh, you know, interest. The Gymkhana is packed uh, for the final. But there is no incident where, you know, there's writing happening or clashes happening after the game finishes, um, you know, which to me is like, you know, staggering considering the sensitive environment that used to exist at that time. However, you know, he does reference that how by the time the 40, around 1945, 46, when the Muslims won an edition of the uh, pentangular, um, you know, the, the Muslim League used it as leverage to say, okay, you know, now this this shows that we are strong enough and we have, um, you know, we can succeed on our own. And so you know, they used it as a leverage to push for the demand of Pakistan. So cricket had started mixing with politics at that point of time. And Gandhi was obviously, you know, opposed to this form of domestic cricket, which was organized on communal lines. And to a great extent, the, you know, the rest of the administrators as well, because the pentangular starts fading in prominence and the Ranji Trophy is launched in the mid-30s, primarily to, to uh, reduce its prominence. And then it ends up becoming this tournament that happens once in Bombay. And I think by the time independence comes, it's pretty much over. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great book that gives an account of, you know, social history and how cricket was kind of woven into society during that period of time um, and speaks a little bit to some of the benefactors of of cricket as well who were largely you know the princely rulers uh, who gave a lot of money and gave a lot of uh, um, sponsorships to to leading cricketers of, of that era. Wow I'm at a loss of words to even pose a question this was a powerful account and look this book has been on my radar but I bought eight or nine books during the pandemic of which I've only finished, I think, one. <laughs> so, I mean, and I, I have one of other Ram's books that came out, Ram Guha's book. But, uh, I mean, Ram Guha being the meticulous, you know, world-class historian that he is. So talk about the research, you know, I'm sure, like, uh, in your way, in your observation, you know, you use Gandhi as a backdrop to write such a important book on Indian cricket history. So I'm sure this kind of book deserves or probably has world-class research. You can't just write a book like this. So does he talk about the research, like what, what pains, what methods he took to get this information out to the reader? Because this sounds like phenomenal. I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> I'm in awe already. Yeah. And I think um, um, having read a few more of Ram's books, I, uh, as I said, I'm reading his second biography of Gandhi right now. Um, you know, obviously, he he takes his book writing seriously, and and he and like any historian, um, spends a lot of time doing research. I remember the book was filled with uh, footnote references. Um, so I I when I was reading it, every 
few lines there was a reference and i had to go back and and i this is like one of my nitpicking habits as a book reader like i can't glance over the references if there's a reference to the end notes then i have to go and see okay where is this coming from and i think he relied a lot on primary research so newspaper reports of the day uh uh, you know, uh, books or periodicals that were published at that point of time. Uh, even reading his current book on, on um, you know, Gandhi's time in India, uh, there is, the, he, he actually in the introduction talks about having gone through the whole volumes of uh, Gandhi's own writings, but also volumes that were preserved by his secretaries, archives all over the world, you know, uh, personal records of some of the viceroys, um, because he references their letters that they were writing to their families. Um, as well as, uh, you know, letters of close associates of, of Gandhi at that point of time. And it's a similar exercise that he's done um, for Corner of a Foreign Field as well. So it's a immaculately researched book. And for any fan of Indian cricket who wants to know more about its history, I think it's a, it's a must read. How far does it travel? Like, does it come to 70s, 80s or what? No, I think it, it it basically covers the period from inception of cricket in India till about the the time of independence. Uh, it he has a chapter at the end that speaks to uh, cricket and in in the current Indian society. Um, you know, he he talks a little bit about uh, you know the 1990s and how India Pakistan rivalry and and what what its impact is in the um, in in the Indian subcontinent. He makes a reference to how you know in the 96. Bangalore quarterfinal, uh, you know, people saw Imran and were kind of like hooting him and he kind of had to stop and say, don't, he's a great cricketer, right? So again, Imran comes in here and, and he gets shouted down himself, right? So he talks about how partisanship has like taken hold. Um, but that's only a brief sort of uh, chapter at the end where he talks about cricket in current Indian society, but it, it mostly covers the the pre-independence period, um, which is why I said that I think uh, there's this, there's an opportunity for a good cricket writer to talk and write more about Indian cricket maybe right after independence till maybe the end of the 60s or 1971, which is the inflection point when Vardikar's team, his team wins and cricket kind of becomes uncompetitively the number one sport in the country. But the 50s and 60s are not really well documented um, in, hmm. in Indian cricket history. Would, would you want him to, to biograph like one of your favorite cricketers or, or personalities books, say a memoir on maybe Shah Rukh Khan or Virat Kohli? I don't know if Virat Kohli is your favorite, but I just I think I think for someone <laughs> like I think for someone like Ram, like the subject has to be like really, really rich and deep, right? Like he's writing about Gandhi and there's so many layers to Gandhi, right? Um, yeah. it's 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 hard to think of um an Indian cricketer who's like that deep enough. I wish I mean, he loves though, Bedi. I, I thought I, he could I, have I, written about Bedi, right? I think Bedi is one, but I do wish though, I don't know if this will happen or not, Sakim. Now that we are talking, I think one of my one of the worst cricket books that I've read, or maybe one of the most disappointing cricket books that I've read, and then this is me being provocative on the podcast, is Tendulkar's autobiography. I mean, that is like 600 or whatever, how many pages it is, like you know, newspaper print wasted, right? It's, it's just match report after match report. And for someone who was in the game for 20 years, there's just so much that he can bring out, but it's a, such a sanitized, squeaky clean version that you know there's there's nothing there and i wish someone would have a courage it'll probably have to be a foreign author it can't be an indian person because he'll get killed but i wish 20 30 years someone would like a would write a revisionist piece of history on on tendulkar and explore the dynamics around the society in which he grew up you know his role as a captain his role in that whole match fixing episode and what was going on and then how he adjusts himself to an era where you know, there are other superstars around him. He's not the only one. And then his struggles 
when he's asked to retire, but he stays on for a little while. Like there's so much richness in that, in that, and how he became like the best batsman. But none of that is there in his own book, in his own words. Right. The only time he's authentic is when he's complaining about Dravid declaring on 194 out, and that just I found it like I found it such a selfish account. Um, you know, I'm sorry. I was a big fan of him. When he was playing but i was just so disappointed when i read that book so you know mm. there's an indian cricketer who i think deserves a proper biography so you think this biography I, i've i've heard because you know boria is a biographer right for Tendulkar. Right. right so right. you yeah. think with a world-class pr team you know maybe not as savvy as virat kohli's pr team but who, who's hell in your view is responsible for putting a mediocre book of a legend out there is it the team Tendulkar or is it the wrong man they chose because I don't you can't, think you can't blame I mean, Boria, right? No, you can't. I mean, I know we love to blame blame him for everything. I don't think you can blame him. I think it's just that there's too much to lose by presenting an authentic account. Like there's this so much commercial value at stake that you need to put something out there, but you can't really write an honest account. So um, you know, that that's that's the like and we'll talk about my third book, but right, the the author of that book can afford to be honest and and yeah. you know open, and I don't know. open some skeletons in the cupboard, but I don't think Tindulkar himself can. That's why I said yeah. it'll probably have to be 30, 40 years later when his commercial value is not so important and maybe a foreign author. Mm. And I don't want to make Vijay mad, but that's why I think it's good that Rahul Javid is not coming out of the book. Because if he comes with like a wishy-washy diplomatic book, then we are better not to have a book because then, then, I agree. I, <laughs> because I agree. he has I mean, stories my, to tell. Exactly. And, right. <laughs> if you and don't my, want to my, tell them properly, don't tell. And my irritation with Dravid always is that, you know, he has this nice, good schoolboy image and he never talks. Everybody around him has spoken. He's never spoken. But I think it's fine if... if, if I and we have to decipher his silence. <laughs> exactly. I, I would much rather have him be silent than, you know, present a sanitized version of events like like Tindulkar done where like everything's great, nothing's wrong, nothing wrong ever happened. And you know, like talking of biographers, right? Again, we we all have our issue with Boria and his PhD and his, you know, the way he operates. But one thing I missed about Imran was right, when I look, when I bought the book, I didn't know who Christopher Sanford was. Then in 2016 or 17, when I Googled him, again, I'm no pop culture man, but this is the list that he has biographed. JFK, John Fisitel Kennedy, Paul McCartney. Mick Jagger, Kurt Cobain, I mean, <laughs> uh, Roman Polanski. I mean, this is just crazy. So Imran, again, going back to him, he fits in with those subjects because, because yeah. Sanford didn't have to write about Imran. <laughs> and they're yeah. like other people like, you know, who played cricket better than Imran. And But when you write a book that is going to address like a larger than life, you know, sociopolitical superstar, whatever, y- you have to fit the bill. Yeah. And again, that just proves the point, like, like him, or not, of course, there's a lot of, you know, flawed value in Imran. And one point that you made about his captaincy, I, I will also add that his style was more authoritarian. So it can't be replicated. That's why there was a lot of chaos, you know, post Imran, like, you know, everything mm-hmm. fixing and everything came, the team was better, yeah. but you can't keep the lid on because yeah. he was like a school principal and everything, all hell break loose, the one, yeah. you know, he left the corridor. So again, uh, I wanted to m- mention Christopher Sanford and his subjects. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, Ram Guha again, you know, like I hope he decides to write more. Uh, I, I definitely will get this book, which was already a highly recommended book. And you did really uh, ample yeah, justice of it's highlighting. A, it's a, it's a must read. Yeah. All right. Let's go back a little bit more 
back in time, Sakib. I know you have someone from history who's a little bit forgotten, but I think got his due with, with a good book. Um, you want to speak to us about one of the principal actors of Bodyline? Yeah, that's like one of my favorite podcasts in cricket and tennis. You know, I actually, when I read a book and Duncan Hamilton's team agreed to, you know, for him to come on the podcast and they send me well, just a little tidbit, they send me a PDF of his uh, football novel, right? Mm-hmm. Injury time. And then I had to read that. And this you have to do a plugin. And I'm not a big time podcaster. So I said, okay, they need to me to do a plugin. So then I, you know, I kind of read that novel. And then in the end, you know, I had to ask him about that novel. But the main show was Larwood. And mm-hmm. uh, look, Larwood is, again, whatever your recollection of body line is, there was this Australian TV series that was yep. showed in Doordarshan. Yep, Hugo Weaving playing as yep. Douglas Jardine, mm-hmm. and you know, yep. and in 2006, I got a VCD on I think eBay or some some place, and I ordered that, and I tried watching it, you know, when I would come home from work, and I just couldn't get into it because I was already an advanced audience as far as English content goes than what what I used to be, and I really thought, okay, this was body line. I mean, yeah, it was, uh, you know, pretty much Bradman versus Jardine and Larwood, but it wasn't really well made. So I, I stopped like in episode two or three, I didn't go further. But when I got my hands on this book, uh, and then I decided to do a podcast, I think this is like one of the most misunderstood tragic figures in all of yep. sport, definitely in cricket, you know, mm-hmm. the classism, and you know, his background, yep. everything stands out, like a, a mill worker, like, you know, the book shows how poor they were, and then how much mm-hmm. he had to walk every day, you know, to go play cricket. And then his his encounters with the establishment, Arthur Carr becoming a father figure, his friendship with Bill Voice. You know, I even, uh, in the podcast, I asked, uh, there's a point in the book where uh, uh, the replications of body line are taking place and Larwood is the biggest casualty and yeah. Jardine escapes it. So England still needs a quick bowler and Bill Voice, who was like partner in crime, has a choice. And Larwood, you know, it's like a moment, like I, kept, I call on the podcast, the Stringer Bell and, you know, Barksdale from The Wire, you know, like they both are like standing across and it was very, I think, Shakespearean, like to me, like <laughs> the friendship is on the line and both men don't blame each other. And Larva is a man of few words anyway. So yeah. he gets the axe and voice still plays for England for a season or two. So I think he's a very misunderstood guy. And then he held it all together for years. Mm-hmm. That his departure to Australia, meeting up with Fingleton, and and the biggest surprise for me was like I wanted to race through the chapters and see how his relationship evolves with Jardine post his playing days. And Jardine, like what I remember from the TV series in Doordarshan, I didn't understand much what was going on. I thought he was a bad guy. Then I realized, you know, like they had, you know, a history to. They thought Jardine and Co. also thought Bradman was a very conceited, arrogant fellow. That's mm-hmm. what the book's account is. So they want to settle score with him. Of course, body line is body line is well documented. But he stays true to his friendship with Larwood. He right. even comes to see him in Australia when Jardine is an old man and they have like a very good get together and they parted ways as friends. So I think that's for me, that was a fitting piece because you know, Larwood being the tragic figure, I was so hoping that Jardine doesn't abandon him and he didn't. But overall, mm-hmm. Like his his fallout with English cricket, like as they famously they say, the smoke coming out of body line was seen for decades and nobody wanted yeah. to do any part of it. And he was the obvious uh, casualty. And then the other part in the book that uh, Hamilton uh, emphasized, and I'm going to also plug in the episode, go and listen to that episode. It was really good. 
what Duncan has to say, that Bradman tried to shortchain Larwood later on when he was running cricket affairs in Australia by alleging that Larwood was throwing. He was chucking. Ah, very interesting. Uh-huh. So again, yeah, like with Jordan, with Tendulkar, Imran too, like, you know, Imran has said some very funny things, you know. So the creator of the sportsman, sometimes their egos get in the way. Yeah. And sometimes, yeah. I think the older era was better that we didn't know we only got their quotes because sometimes you hear them how self-centered and absorbed they are. That's true. Yeah. You know, it takes away the charm. Of course, in Take 40s, I have my real life battles with life, you know, life yeah. challenges you every day. Yeah. So if Jordan's a dick or Imran is considered a Tendulkar is self-centered, it, I don't lose sleep over this. Yeah. But I can still appreciate for what they are, what they are, but I also see the complexity of alpha males because, mm-hmm. and someone will say Tendulkar is not alpha. Maybe he's not your typical alpha, but if you are being touted as the best ever, there is some sort of an alpha-ness that creeps in in the most non-alphas too. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, and, and that was the whole point, right? I mean, when I talked about his, he's still cribbing about his 194 not out. I mean, to me, that's that's just a person who's still stuck on not getting a personal milestone after all these years in a test match that the team won, right? Like he hasn't moved on from that. He devotes two pages in his book talking about like what was told to him and what he interpreted and what Dravid told him later. And Dravid comes to apologize by Tindulkar's accounts and Tindulkar still says it's not okay. Can you get me one, one? Yeah. One yeah, more thing I, I, I would forget. It, I found it fascinating, yeah. No, carry on. No, I mean, you know, I'll ask you about the Dravid and Tendulkar thing again, because I think that deserves a podcast. Maybe Vijay has to come and, you know, start hitting his square cuts. But uh, Hamilton told me, right, to write this book, he had to go to Sydney. And he said, that was a must. He said, you can't complete this book without ta- talking to Larwood's family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like that kind of just puts things in perspective. If you're going to tackle a serious subject, and every subject, you know, with professional integrity has to be a serious account. That's why I asked you about Ram Guha's research methods, because, you know, you don't want to take the reader for, you know, a ride, because you have to arrive at these conclusion points, because you're trying to, like, pretty much pen down someone's life, and you have to have the most accurate accounts. You don't want to settle scores and say if, you know, and he says, he also learned a lot about Bradman in his book that he had known about. Prior, because Bradman is, look, is he's a single most, you know, iconic figure in his own right. Like, there's no one like Bradman. But at the same time, there's another side of Bradman, just because if you read 10 books about Bradman that talk about his greatness. And I don't want to get any, you know, like people getting mad at me, but that's what I read. And I haven't read too much about Bradman, but I wanted to choose to read about Larwood. And I would encourage everyone who listens to this podcast, including you, when you get a chance, grab a copy. And uh, it's a it's a very riveting account, and he really brings this man back to life, and you you start feeling for him, you know, at certain point what he has to go through, and that's uh, I think I haven't read other other of Hamilton's books. I told him while on the podcast I'm fascinated to read about George Best, the football player he wrote mm-hmm. about, even yep. though football's not my sport. I want to yep. read about like that kind of a figure who had right. a fall from grace and is a bit of a misunderstood. Uh, I always think, look, we all, yep. all we are all flawed. I'd rather read a flawed subject than, uh, you know, someone who's glorified. So in that way, I think Imran and Larwood are very flawed. Yeah. And despite their obvious greatness, you know. What, what, what's most fascinating to me about the Larwood story is when, and, and when I came across this fact, I was really surprised, is that despite all the rancor of body line, he still ends up and, and lives, you know, a significant chunk of his life in Australia. Like that's the place he decides to move. And, to me, um, you know, it's again a reflection on 
the Australian culture and, and the welcoming society that it is that a figure who was, you know, sort of almost like a person of hate for that period when body line was happening, you know, is accepted in that country and lives out, you know, his old age fairly peacefully. Like, I mean, it's hard to imagine um, <clears throat> something like that happening in like modern times or even in the Indian subcontinent, right? Uh, but given all the controversy that was happening around body line, you know, Dawood still decides he, he he makes Australia his home and very successfully. So that, and, that and was he got, very interesting. He got, a lot of, he got a lot of hate mail. People used to write letters to him from Australia mm-hmm. and England. Mm-hmm. He became mm-hmm. this ultimate villain. Even yeah. his own abandoned him. So, And then I think there's an account in book that he didn't answer the phone at, at home for the longest time. Yeah. So these, these kind of things have, you know, effect on people. He was yeah. kind of a man of few words. And then he yeah. was alienated to the maximum extent. And then he wanted to talk about this, but he always thought if he would talk about this, that's kind of going against some sort of a code, some sort of a moral yeah. obligation yeah. he had. Yeah. So, he, yeah. He, he played to being a team man till the end, right? He didn't, he never gave up on the team or Jardi, you know, never came out and said that, you know, he was the only one singled out. Uh, whereas it was, it was a team decision. There were 11 people on the field. And I think even for Bradman fans, right? I'm sure most people have read Larwood. This is like one of the most riveting accounts. I would say like, it doesn't make Don the, you know, the great as a villain, but Don's story, Larwood is an integral chapter. You have to yeah. acknowledge yeah. what went on in that series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Correct. Absolutely. So this brings us to the last book. And uh, uh, I throw this ball back to you. Uh, bring in bring in the subject. All right. Let me... <laughs> complete the rally with a with a backhand down the line um so my final book is uh sanjay manjrekar's imperfect um and i choose it because uh again context matters when you read a book matters i, I read that book about i would say five years ago when it, when it had just come out so i was in my mid-30s and at that point of time you know you're starting to make peace with a few things in life you've you've overcome a few disappointments, um, you've matured as a person. And so imperfect is a good way to look at things and say, okay, you know, some things are good, some things are not so good, right? And that's kind of how life turns out. And I felt that it was a very honest and candidly written account, probably by far, you know, the most candid book I've ever read by by any cricketer who owned up to his own failures, first of all, but then was also very open uh, in talking about what was not right in the environment around him. Um, and as we were discussing before we started this part, uh, it is very self-deprecating in tone, right? There's, you, you sometimes when you read that book, uh, you find it hard to believe that, you know, Manjikar was actually a very successful uh, domestic cricketer, uh, if not, a, you know, obviously didn't succeed to, at le- to a level in international cricket, but for a brief period of time was regarded as probably the best batsman in the world. Um, and so it's a very deeply personal examination um, and I don't think anyone who is not secure with themselves or who hasn't sat back and reflected on what they have done in life would have been able to write a book like that, right? So I really appreciated like, you know, how comfortable the author was in getting under his own skin um, and talking about his highs and his lows with equal candidness. And there, there are a lot of things in that book that stuck with me, right? I mean, that that's kind of where, you know, I, I rank that book very highly because there's so many things that he writes about that are that that's still I, I can still very easily remember, right? I think he talks about his relationship with his father, and I think his father comes across as a narcissistic personality who was very dominating, wanted him to be a cricketer, but you know, Sanjay never really had a 
uh, a loving relationship with him. He, he he had a better relationship with his mom, who, um, you know, was where he found a little bit more love and care. But he always had to measure up to his father because his father came from this proper Bombay school of batsmanship. And when he got into cricket, you know, that's the yardstick that that he was measured against. Um, so his father was this goal that he was striving to. Uh, and I think he talks, there's very few instances he mentions, right, when he actually receives praise from his father for for his performances, right? So there's there's, there's that part of the book. And to some extent, this goes back to, this is like the Dilip Kumar Amitabh Bachchan equation from Shakti, right? You know, there's, there's a dad, dad, son friction happening. Um, and then, uh, you know, he he speaks about um, the the whole environment of how being in Bombay and playing for Bombay was so different to to playing for India, right? How the two dressing rooms are so different. He speaks about this community in Bombay that supports you, that's invested in your growth, right? That people around you who are telling you to be better, helping you be better. And he says, and I get to the Indian team and it's a dressing room full of snakes. Like there's, there's backbiting, there's, you know, no... Um, you know, there's hardly any kind of team spirit. Every man is for himself. Um, I think there's enough points of evidence now that at least I have read or heard about from other sources to pretty much make sure this is true. This is like what was happening in the in the second half of the 80s. He talks about being in um, in the Caribbean on that 89 tour and couple is bowling bouncers to him in the nets. And, you know, Manjarkar gets fed up and finally hooks one and couple games and comes and says, very good, you know, play like this in the match also. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, he's, he says, you know, uh, Ravi Shastri and I are sitting and uh, drinking tea and we see, you know, these West Indian fast bowlers bowling and, you know, Ravi is like, you know, let's see how many of us are able to stand in front of him. Um so, you know, the, the, he, he speaks to a lot of this tension in the dressing room and the fact that, you know, he never found this the, the environment to be supportive. And I think this is that period of like drifting Indian cricket where post 87, it's not couples mm. team. He's there for himself. You don't really know what's going on with him. That's Venserker's no, team, right? He was a captain. Yeah, there's Venserker's team, but then it morphs into Azhar's team. And then he talks a little bit about Azhar as well, right? Where he says he all he wanted to do was basically enjoy his fielding. So he had this very set template that somebody's going to ball five overs each, five overs each, and then this baller has come and nothing's going to change, right? So um, so he, he gives a good insight into how Indian cricket was was not really modern in that period of between mid-80s and mid-90s, right? Um, so Does the book cover of, his fallouts with Shastri and Samwad with Tendulkar? So I'll get to it. He, he doesn't address that, Sorry. but there's, there's a part about Prabhakar that I'll get to in a bit. Um, but then the other thing that 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 I was able to triangulate this with is I think um I read an article, and it's probably Sid Monga who had written this, right? That Manoj Prabhakar was the first Indian who discovered reverse swing, right? And it's fascinating that uh the from Manoj Prabhakar, that art never you know got transferred to anybody else um in the Indian team till the time. Uh, Srinath comes into the team and is becomes a senior player. And from that part, you see, you know, and maybe it was Sharda, I think it was not Sid Monga. But, you know, the fact that this Indian team was like this, this snake pit, in the sense that Prabhakar learned reverse swing, but kept it to himself. Um, and, you know, couple couldn't reverse swing the ball, nobody else could. Um, but then Srinath comes into the team. And now when he and Kumble and these guys are, are, are more senior, the atmosphere totally changes because they take over this onus of, you know, there's, there can't be a senior junior culture, right? We are all together and 
I think Sharda in one of her articles writes about how every time Srinath used to come to Delhi, he used to stay in Ashish Nehra's house, right? There's this bonding in the team between the Pacers. And from there on, you kind of see this lineage of, you know, Indian Pacers coming through. And and But th- that period is a little bit of a, of a dark time. Um, and then, yes, he, he does talk about how, in fact, ironically, Sanjay was very good friends with Prabhakar. He, he, you know, he appreciated the spunk in him as a cricketer. But then he says we had that falling out, you know, which was unfortunate with the whole match fixing thing. And then Prabhakar secretly recorded him for Thelka and all that. So there's there's lots of interesting stuff. And um, and then he he devotes a big chunk of time talking about his 1989 tour to Pakistan. And how he was a big Imran fan, right? He, you know, he's he says I came back from that tour, and um, you know, I was just fascinated by the fact that there were two people who just, you know, twenty four seven were just so deeply immersed in cricket. Um, he says one was a nineteen year old, so I could understand why, and I knew this guy is going to be a superstar. So he's obviously referring to Tendulkar, sixteen year old. Sorry, at that point, and. And he said the other was actually approaching 40 and I couldn't understand why. But then that told me the greatness of the man that, you know, everybody else was done, but Imran still practicing. And he's like, I came back from that tour, you know, so much in awe of him. And then uh, he he tells this funny incident where, you know, he goes to Sharjah and he's, you know, somebody's giving him throwdowns and he's hitting the balls and then he hits the ball to a Pakistani journalist, right? And this journalist gets angry and he says, you know, how are you hitting and why don't you play like this in the match? And then, you know, Manjrikar says something negative about, you know, Pakistan to him and says, you know, we'll beat Pakistan and all that. And suddenly he hears Imran's voice from the back saying, Pakistan is not all that bad. And he says, I I literally froze, right? My icon was there behind <laughs> me and I'm saying something negative about Pakistan. And, you know, I kind of felt like I can dug, dig a hole and, kind of, you know, hide myself here. So so that that part was fascinating. And then there's this, some funny recollection. You know, there's one story I found really funny where he talks about this Javed-Imran equation and gives you an insight into it, right? Where he says that, um, uh, you know, this, uh, Javed had this habit of... Uh, coming and giving suggestions after every ball um, and, you know, uh, saying that, oh, do this, do that. And then he says, uh, at one point of time, um, you know, Imran just gets exasperated and he says, sometimes you're saying something, sometimes you're saying something else, right? And then he says, you know, Javed went out muttering under his breath that if you don't want to listen to me, don't want to listen to me, what's the point? So, um, <laughs> you know, so, there's, there's, so he has some like these very funny anecdotes in the book which stick out. But I think overall, it's a very very balanced view and he 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 writes later on that i he said with the help of modern technology i went back in you know after much after i had retired and i saw uh, what i was doing wrong um when uh, when i when i started struggling for form um and it it also gives you a little bit of an insight into the the mind of a cricketer right he says he talks about he went on that australia tour and he said i was in such great form that I went with sky high confidence that I'm going to conquer Australia, right? And he says, I, I, I failed once, I failed twice. And I was like, okay, you know, century's coming around the corner, century's coming around the corner. And before I know it, the tour's over. Um, and you know, he, he speaks, yeah, and he, he speaks some very plain truths that, you know, there were, he said there were big grounds and they exposed our fitness because he said, I got run out so many times. I just couldn't, you know, judge uh, how strong their throwing arms were, how when to run a third, when to not run a third, and I was not quick enough between the wickets. I, uh, so there's some, um, you know, there's a lot of candor in in that book, and um, that's something that I I really appreciated. And as some as a cricket fan who had started, you know, um, 
watching cricket around that time, you know, I could relate back to a lot of things he was writing with things I had seen on TV. I think that's another reason why I particularly enjoyed that book. Um, and I really enjoyed, you know, how refreshingly honest he was about dressing room and people and personalities. No, it's been recommended by a few of the close friends. And again, it's one of those books that I need to get a copy of. But let me ask you this, uh, the self-deprecating tone. So you thought, you think that was con- consistent throughout the book? Did he use that to elevate, say, the Gavaskars and the Tendulkars or Vengsarkars? Or it was just the way he, he wrote about himself? I think it's primarily how he wrote about himself. Um, because he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about other cricketers. Wherever he does it, he does it in relation to himself. Uh, and and he's very, uh, you know, honest in admitting that there were people around him who were more talented. So he talks about how he went, goes on that 96 tour to England. Um, and he says, I, I think he played the first test at Nottingham and then he got injured. Uh, and he says, then Lords came and I saw Ganguly and, and Dravid batting and I realized this is it, my time's over. I, I'm never going to get into the middle order slot for an Indian team again. And that's why he says, he says, we went back um, and, you know, the team wanted openers. And he said, I had never opened in my life. I never wanted to be an opener, but I knew that's the only slot available in the Indian team. So I decided to open. And so he actually opens in, in I think, one or two test matches uh, in that South Africa series at home in 96. Um, so so he's very, uh, you know, uh, open in the sense of acknowledging that there's a point of time when he reached his expiry and there were other better people and he knew that, you know, the game was up. And I think he retires from even domestic cricket one or two seasons later, at least he announces an international cricket retirement fairly soon after he plays his last test match because he kind of knew that, you know, things were... He 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 writes, the self-deprecating tone goes away a little bit when he shifts a little bit towards his time post-retirement in the media. I think that he writes more fondly about. And in fact, if I recall correctly, he actually says he enjoyed that time more than the time as a cricketer. Um, you know, because I think he says, you know, I, I got a chance to make mistakes. I... I, I got to sat down he sits down with his idol imran in the 2004 tour right and so he's like fanboying again a little bit uh he's in the studio with him uh, but he talks about how you know it, it was a more supportive environment he made some mistakes but he kind of gradually learned how to do things well um it was a more forgiving environment obviously compared to being an international cricketer where scope of mistakes is not too much so that part is less self-replicating in the book but when he's talking about himself as a cricketer i think he's being very open and honest of what he did well and what where he went wrong no that's that's quite candid but i do remember that time uh, uh vaguely when gavaskar retired Manjrekar and Sidhu, I think they scored centuries in West Indies in 88, 89. Mm-hmm. And then the 89 Pakistan tour where, you know, Vakar, I think said, it's very hard to get him out. Some sort of a comment yeah. came in sports yeah. world, like, you know, yeah. they mm-hmm. were complimentary of Tendulkar, but they thought Manjrekar's wicket was a prize wicket. And then the 91, 92 Australia tour, I was so hopeful that with the trio of Manjrekar, Azhar and Tendulkar would bring us some laurels because that was the series for that era. Yep. And uh, it's too bad, like, you know, his... His peak was so short-lived because for for a yeah. moment he seemed like the gap between Gavaskar and Tendulkar, the best Indian batsman. True, true. Yeah. All yeah, right. So this was th- this was uh, quite the fun, uh, I think, episode. You you really brought some you know good insights about the those two books, especially. And uh, I, I will get to those hopefully, and hopefully the listeners, if they haven't read those books, will enjoy uh, this conversation. Any any other book? since we're talking books that you have read, which didn't make the cut, you would like to recommend? To yeah, anyone. I mean, I think obviously uh, 81 All Out, our fellow 
podcast folks i'll give them a plug i think they've done a great job in getting mark mike marquis's book out i heard so much about it and then i was able to get a copy i read it i think it was it was it was great um there, there's another book uh, called borders battlers that also i think um i got access to because um the sidvi did a podcast with with the author and it's it's the account of the tight test it's a fascinating book you know just you know that's such a great test match and the book actually talks about what all happened behind the scenes um and um i've read steve was autobiography which which was i think a decent autobiography i think it's uh, it's it's uh, it talks a little bit about his struggles and kind of how uh, he he emerged through them um and i know like you know he's a, he's a difficult personality to be a fan of but i think it's a good book by its, by itself um so yeah i mean those are um some of the ones that 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 i've at least i've read i know there are many more good ones out there that that i haven't had the chance to read um but i think if you're a young cricket fan if you're in your uh, you know teens or preteens or or if you have young young children who who are cricket fans then obviously you know recommending uh, sunil gavaskar's classic books would be would be a good idea right sunny days and then i think runs and ruins is an interesting one i read it in school it's a little bit more candid than maybe even sunny days he talks about some of his tough period um it also maybe refers a little bit to the kapil gavaskar friction that was happening um so yeah i think there's some there's some good books out there for especially younger readers to to get in get get into absolutely so after this was incredible fun let's do more yeah, of this podcast yeah Yeah, absolutely. in the future, and Thanks then for having uh, me. No, no, absolutely, and it's always good to exchange views and learn, you know, with your experiences. So, everybody, thanks for listening, and we'll be recording more podcasts in the future. Hopefully, it's not a year that was like last year, so we'll be more regular this forum. But enjoy the cricket that's coming your way, and uh, share your feedback and what you think of this uh, episode, and also share your favorite books. This is Sakib and Aftab signing off. Talk to you guys soon. Bye. Thanks.